Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Kirsten Lopez. On this episode, we're talking with the founders of the Coalition of Master Scholars on Material Culture. This includes Sydney Sheehan, Hope Gillespie, and Mary Kate Smolinski. Thank you all for joining us on this episode. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thrilled to have you here, and we're looking forward to learning more about the coalition, which everybody can find on Twitter, and there's a wonderful website, and we'll provide all of these links and handles on the post. And so let's get started. If uh, we can have you guys introduce yourselves and let our listeners know a little bit about you, um, how about we start with Sydney? Tell us about yourself. Sure. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Sydney. Um, so I did my undergrad at GW. I studied art history. Um, I actually went into GW um, thinking that I was going to study biological anthropology, um, but I switched over pretty much at the end of my, my, my career there. Um, and then I just recently finished up my master's degree at Columbia. Um, I studied 19th century American art uh, with a focus on representations of indigenous people by Euro-American artists. Um, that sounds and I fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was really, it was awesome. It was not what I thought I would be studying when I went into Columbia. I like entered being like, I'm going to study Georgia O'Keeffe and everything about women artists. Um, but my, <laughs> uh, my advisor was awesome. And she really like saw that I was awesome at researching this one area. Um, and I went mm -hmm. with it. And now I'm a curatorial associate at uh, the SS United States Conservancy, which is a nonprofit um, organization. Yeah. That is so cool. Thank you for introducing us to yourself. And Hope, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm uh, Hope Gillespie. I am the content and co-finance chair at CMSMC. Um, I also have my BA from the George Washington University, but in archaeology. Um, and my MA is also in archaeology and heritage of the Near East and Egypt from University College London. Um, I primarily study Egyptology and cultural memory in Egypt, as well as the influences of Orientalism um, on museum display as applied to Egyptology. Um, wow. I'm also a really big fan of uh, British literature and the way that um, material culture is expressed through literature. Um, I've dug twice uh, in Israel, uh, both times at Tel Kabri, um, mm -hmm. which is incredible. Um, highly recommend reading up on it. It's a beautiful Bronze Age uh, Canaanite palace. Um, Can people visit there? So they can't. Um, but we've recently published all of the excavation reports. So those are all available now. Um, and so Dr. Eric Klein is the uh, one of the directors of the excavation. Um, and he has several books that he's written, and he uses all of our data in them. Um, so it's super accessible, uh, literary-wise. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's awesome. Thank you. And Mary-Kate, tell us about yourself. Hi, everybody. I'm Mary-Kate Smolensky. Um, Like Hope and Sydney, I also went to the George Washington University. That's where we all met. Um, and I was an anthropology and history double major at GW. And then I decided to go more of the history route in graduate school. So I 
went to Tufts University in their MA program in history and museum studies, um, because I'm really interested in public history and I want to work in the museum field. Mm -hmm. Um, And I focused in on the British Atlantic while I was in graduate school, which basically means Britain and all of its many um, implications around the Atlantic um, Ocean. So all of their colonies, all their trade posts, things like that. So it's basically four continents. Um, and my particular area of focus is loyalist women, um, which is usually the people you don't hear about when you talk about the American Revolution. Um, one, you usually focus on the patriots more than the loyalists. And then it's usually all of the men. But there are a lot of loyalist women or people who were married to loyalists who had a lot of impact from that. So that's what I study. And currently, I am a research fellow at the Preservation Society of Newport County in Rhode Island, um, which is where I'm from. And I'm working with another fellow, and we are actually doing a complete reinterpretation and reinstallation of an 18th century historic house called Hunter House. You guys have the just absolutely fascinating research, and what a broad range of types of research too. Yeah, it's a uh, we're the the hodgepodge of best friends who do everything <laughs> under the sun. Um, we actually all met in our um, archaeology class in our intro yeah. archaeology class oh, freshman fantastic. year, um, and have been best friends ever since. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. That is wild. Wow, I haven't thought about how long it's been. That's wonderful. Yeah, we the hosts kind of. We all came together just with the this podcast, and we only actually all met a year ago. Is that right, Kirsten? Uh, yeah, it was uh, the SAAs 2019. Um, we stayed together in Albuquerque. Yeah. But we've been talking together for years. Yeah, this is uh, year five. Oh, my God. So yeah, it's so been a I hot minute. I you guys have all come together just from that class. It's wonderful how archaeology can bring people together in the most fantastic ways. It really is. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. Well, thank you so much for introducing yourselves. And I'm looking forward to hearing about how the coalition came together. So I'm guessing after your classes, after graduating, this idea came about? Um, yeah, so I think it actually really came up when Mary-Kate and I, um, we hosted a panel um, that was talking about what do grad students do now? Um, what do they do now? What do we do now? Like, you know, we've graduated, we we all graduated from master's programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Mary-Kate and I graduated right at the height of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. all of the fellowships and internships and everything that we were looking at, um, basically went away. And so it was this really confusing moment. And then on top of that, our grad programs were paying a little bit more attention to the PhD students than the master's students. Um, So it was really frustrating because, you know, we were seeing others getting financial help and um, getting assistantships and things like that. But because master's students sort of go through the program pretty quickly, uh, there's a little bit less focus on our professional development. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I sort of proposed to Mary-Kate and Hope because A, they're my like great friends and B, they're also two of the smartest women that I know. And I was just like, let's figure something out that we can do. And then my great idea was like, oh, let's start a journal, which turns out (laughs) unless you have institutional backing is not very easy. 
Um, that would be hard, I can imagine, just yeah. even then trying to get to publication costs and whatnot. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we sort of set our sights on a digital publication. Um, and we, I think we started working on this in June. Am I right, guys? Yeah. Yes. It was, yeah. Yeah. Like and then 2019 or 20, 2020. 2020. 2020. So very yeah. recent. Yeah, very, very recent. Um, and then we launched in September because that was the start of the academic year. Mm-hmm. And it's just been a wild ride since then. <laughs> that is amazing. And I, I love your focus on um, masters in general. I mean, personally, I would love to get my PhD. It's just not in my cards, one financially or two. It doesn't really, um, I'm a federal archaeologist and it doesn't make as much sense in my career path. But I, I totally agree. It tends to be the focus on PhDs. And I went into a terminal master's program. So I lucked out in that the focus was on MAs, but kind of that same boat as you where it's like, well, what next after an MA? Where do you go from here? You could go for a PhD, but what's in the career fields? And yeah. I love that you have this focus to begin with. And then it seems then you're trying to really promote MA research in general. Does that sound correct? Oh, yeah. So a big part for all three of us was that we had so much research to do during our MAs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my MA was a little bit shorter than theirs because I did a British program, which is a calendar year and not two academic years. Um, so I had nine months to write my dissertation. Oh, my gosh. Which was a lot. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I actually I had wanted to do um, some field work for my dissertation and I couldn't. So it ended in a very rushed six day trip to Egypt where I did a quick survey of the temple that I was writing about. Oh um, and I had no funding from the school for it. I had to do it all on my own. Um, and so for us, research is really, really important because mm-hmm. if, if you don't have the means and the ability to really go as far as you can, with what you're trying to study, then it's it's detrimental to the to the final product. It's detrimental to public understanding. It's it's detrimental mm-hmm. to education. Um, and for us, I think that getting those early steps of knowledge deeply rooted in in what you're talking about and deeply rooted in the physicality and the research is vital mm-hmm. to going on and, and being a better teacher, a better academic, a better archaeologist, a better art historian, historian, what have you. That's fantastic. And just looking at your website, um, just as you were saying, uh, archaeologist, art historian, you're not only just focusing on the work of archaeologists. I like that you're trying to broaden it with museum studies. That I mean, it's, it's as your coalition is called with the material culture that can bring in a lot of different fields. Yes, certainly. I think that's what we realized. We were all we all ended up in different fields, even though we all started together in intro to archaeology, and we were looking for kind of a common thread between them all. And we realized material culture was that common thread. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, with the coalition in general, not just bringing out the works of MAs, what would you say is the, it, and there could be more than one, like what are the primary goals of the coalition as a whole? I think uh, the primary goals for us are really to amplify the scholarship and voices of master's students. So essentially, you know, we, the three of us felt a lot of these frustrations in our programs and then afterwards. Um, and we realized that now is the time, you know, obviously with the pandemic, a lot of things changed and a lot of mm-hmm. opportunities were taken away. But we also found that since everything was moving 
to a more digital space, um, that there were more opportunities being presented. So we figured, you know, if we want to make our own opportunities, maybe we could also make opportunities for others who are in our shoes or who are looking to pursue a master's degree. Um, so really, we just want to provide those opportunities, provide those publications, um, because it's super important, right? Like, you know, if I'm mm -hmm. applying even for an entry level, uh, whether it be museum job or uh, even a teaching job, I am competing with people who have seven years of um, of research under their belts and, and teaching and publications um, and who are funded for those things. And so mm -hmm. to be able to create a space that focuses on the um, basically like the professional development and um, scholarship development of people in our shoes is really important because, you know, we are the future of, acad of academia. So, you know, it's best to sort of have as many voices in there and really focus on diversity and um, things that may not have been given a second look because they're a little out there or, um, you know, or, or haven't received as much funding, just, you know, really offering opportunities. And additionally, a big thing for us is all three of us have a big focus on public history. Mm -hmm. And something that we have found is that a lot of people who are academics have a really hard time writing for the public. And academic language is super gatekeepy. Oh my goodness! The, the jar jargon explosions. It's it's articles. So ridiculous. And so a big thing for us is because I'm I'm a teacher. Um, Mary Kate uh, does museum education, and so does Sydney. Um, it's really important for us to not only provide these opportunities for master students to get published, but to also show them that there is a broader audience of people who are interested and how to write in a way that makes it more accessible to them. Um, mm -hmm. Just because you aren't paying for an education doesn't mean you don't have access to knowledge, mm -hmm. um, which is also why nothing that's on our site right now um, is behind a paywall. Yeah. Because it's so difficult to get access to these more thoroughly researched papers when you're a member of the public, or even when you are sure. a master's student who isn't affiliated with the university and they're not paying for your JSTOR membership or what have you. Exactly. And just for, for our listeners, if you go on the coalition website, the, the, all the posts, the and, um, articles on there are exceptionally accessible in terms of language. Mm -hmm. uh, and comparatively speaking, trying to read a lot of the antiquities journals. Yes, they're great, but are they for, your everyday person not quite so much because there's so much jargon i even sometimes have to look up some stuff where i'm like what on earth is this even about so yeah. i thoroughly appreciate where you're trying to not only showcase master's research but you're trying to do it in a way that is exceptionally accessible well and one of the things i was really excited about looking at the website uh too and the work that you guys are doing is that it's not just accessible, it's not just an outlet for master's students to get their research out there and they're not competing or being compared or put up against uh, mm -hmm. professors or um, you know professional researchers that have been doing this for seven plus years, is that it is an outlet that those of us who, as Emily was saying, it doesn't make sense to get a PhD we still want to do research and we still want to engage the public. And that's primarily why like a, 
a PhD doesn't always make sense. Um, or even those who are working or have their PhDs and are teaching at like community colleges and don't have uh, the funding or time to do these massive research projects to be able to get the funding, um, having an outlet that is both not just accessible, but that is consistent in its still of high quality um, and is not just a blog. Exactly. It's so good. Like, seriously. Thank you. You three should be so incredibly proud of yourselves. Yeah. At just how good everything is on the website. Thank As, you. So I mean, we write blog posts, so they tend to be a bit snarky, a little all <laughs> over the place. You guys have professional, academic, professional level so. publications on there. They're fantastic. Okay, we really couldn't do any of this without our awesome editors. Um, you know, we have a group of humans who are so uh, dedicated to the work, which is amazing because some of them, you know, also balance full-time jobs and mm -hmm. um, they're so invested in this and are so helpful. Um, and then of course, also like we were so surprised in a, in a like pleasantly surprised with the amount of people um, and the quality of work that was submitted. You know, we have individuals mm -hmm. from all over, from all across the board. Um, and it's just like amazing to be able to see these different interpretations. I mean, I think my favorite piece so far has been um, New England history and three recipes because like, it's not something that I've ever thought about is like, you know, like looking at history through food um, it's not something that I have done research on, but when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, of course, like this is such an interesting take on it. It's such a cool lens. Um, so really we couldn't do any of it without, without the editors and authors. Well, I love, love your different topics. And yeah, like you were saying with the history of food, I think that's a, also a wonderful way to engage the public through those types of topics too, because who doesn't love food? Um, I'm just tickled by everything you guys are doing with, with the work and, uh, as we all know, the field is incredibly competitive, competitive in terms of employment. So I think this is a great way to showcase people's work, as you're saying, um, for future employers in a way that's not so hard to break into by showcasing one's work. Um, yeah. And just being able to engage those that are interested. Because even for those that are employed or those of us that are employed, it's it's can be hard to to get that out there. Like for example, in cultural resource management, some firms, um, including the one that I work for, encourages publication and presentation um, at conferences. However, one, that's obviously not much of a thing right now. Um, <laughs> two, <laughs> it's, it's preaching to the choir in some ways. I mean, unless mm -hmm. uh, there are situations in which case this will benefit um, other archaeologists and the public by spreading the work that you're doing to other archaeologists working in the same field or in the same region. Um, but by and large, a lot of the research doesn't get out. And I mean, there are obvious like legal and um, other constraints that are attached to that. But I feel like for those of us who want to, to have a broader outreach um, and to show that, you know, archaeology is not Indiana Jones, <laughs> um, there's so much more. And I, I think this is the stuff that people used to watch the history channel for. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the initiatives that we're trying to work on for next year, um, is 
making programming that's accessible for middle school and high school students. Um, oh, because fantastic. all all three of us, like I said, we we all work with public history. Um, and I currently um, am a private tutor and a teacher for uh, some schools in the Pittsburgh area. And all of their field trips have been canceled this year. They can't go to museums. They can't go to, I, I live next to Meadowcroft, which is the oldest uh, continually um, inhabited rock shelter in the United States. They, oh can't, they can't go to these places, right? So to have people like us come in, people who might not have had the opportunity to get teaching experience in their MA programs, um, come in and talk to them about their research and make it accessible for them is something that we're really excited to do. And it's something that I, I love teaching. Um, I absolutely adore it. And yeah. I just, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to get kids excited mm-hmm. about material culture. It's the best. And I'm right there with you. I love public engagement and outreach, especially with kids. And I know we could talk about this for ages because that's one of my favorite topics myself, but we need to close off this segment. And in the next one, we can talk about the wonderful symposium uh, you all held back, I believe in November. So we'll be back. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. We're going to continue our wonderful conversation with the founders of the Coalition of Master Scholars on Material Culture, and we're going to discuss the wonderful symposium that they had this past November, which you can watch, read, listen on their website. So to get started, they it has, I think, a wonderful title where it's History Should Make You Uncomfortable. How did that come about? Um, so it came about because, you know, obviously with everything with the pandemic and then um, with what happened with George Floyd, uh, there was a lot of unrest, um, obviously, mm-hmm. as we all know. Um, and Hope, Mary Kate and I were chatting one day and we were honestly just not even talking about CMSMC. Um, and we were just discussing how, you know, there's so much in the classroom that we're taught when we're young, um, that is pretty much a whitewashed version of history. It's not necessarily the definite truth or it's an easier version of it because either teachers believe sometimes that kids can't handle the difficult truth or it's just easier not to. Um, And so we were just chatting and I think it was hope that said like really emphatically history should make you uncomfortable. And we were just like, okay, wait a minute. (laughs) That's a great theme. Um, So yeah. And it just really came about because it's just like, what are the things that we've learned that we want to maybe unlearn or that Mm -hmm. we need to challenge? Um, and there's so much that we know is difficult to talk about and we don't because it's difficult. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really perpetuated a lot in the classroom. And I think that, you know, Mary Kate Hope and I can all attest to this in our different fields of like reading something or learning something. And you're like, why wasn't this mentioned in my archaeology 101 class? Why wasn't this mentioned in my art history survey course or my like mm-hmm. a history of um, like 
the American Revolution course, you know, all these topics that we think we know. Um, and yet there's so much troublesome background to it that, you know, needs to be needs to be sort of unpacked. That's excellent. And and you're right, incredibly important. For our listeners, could you provide some examples of the kinds of topics you all delved into for the symposium of, of the things that you believe needed to have light shed on them? Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So um, a lot of it ranged from things that are just generally uncomfortable to talk about, uh, like nudity in, in Persian paintings, um, and whereas there are other things that talked about double orientalizing Korea in specific museums. Um, There was one, it was my favorite for obvious reasons, that was about um, the impact of tourism and kind of commodification in Egypt. Um, So it's, it's kind of everything across the board, things that are just traditionally uncomfortable because, you know, talking about the body is taboo, especially, you know, having women talk about nude bodies, right? That's super taboo. Like, why would we do that? And going even further into talking about um, things that intentionally make us uncomfortable in the museum, um, Rachel Trustee did a really great presentation on the piece called Untitled and about how it's intended to kind of have this discomfort inherent Mm -hmm. to the museum visitor. Um, And I think that that was something that we really discovered within the symposium within all of the submissions that we got was that there are so many ways to be uncomfortable and every single one of those ways has like a very broad academic repercussion but also a very personal repercussion Mm -hmm. for you as the learner um i didn't realize that there were there were so many things that made me uncomfortable And not in a bad way, like discomfort is not bad, um, which is something that Alice Proctor kind of, our keynote speaker, Alice Proctor kind of touched on that comfort and discomfort aren't necessarily bad, but the idea of discomfort is what helps you to grow and helps you to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, And so every single one of the presentations was about growth and learning to grow within the spaces that material culture inhabits. That's a really great point. And I'm glad that um, you noted that discomfort um, and learning because it's, there's been a lot of studies in, I don't know, the last 15 or 10 years or so that have touched on um, permanent knowing and knowledge that's gained, learning that's that's gained um, in a more solid, uh, tangible way is when it has an emotional connection. Absolutely. So dis- Discomfort is one of the, I don't know if I'd say easiest, but most um, successfully like touched upon emotions that you can consistently grab um, to be Although able to I feel like people then attach that to like, you're going to traumatize people. It's like, mm-hmm. those aren't no. the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. No. Oh, no, not at all. Especially like when we're talking about talking to kids mm-hmm. kids understand emotional nuance a lot better than anyone thinks that they do you can yeah. explain to children that helen keller was a socialist and they're not <laughs> gonna they're not gonna get upset 
Like they're just, they're not like my father is an American historian and verbatim said to me when I was eight years old, you know, that George Washington started the French and Indian war, right? It has no, it has no effect on, on my opinion of George Washington as, as a founder of our country. It means that he's human. And I think that humanizing historical figures in particular mm-hmm. is super important mm-hmm. because you can't, you can't, you shouldn't worship historical figures. You should present them in the totality of their humanness. Mm-hmm. That's the best that. way to learn about them. I love that. Same. I, I love the idea of making something that seems really difficult to convey actually making it seem like it's actually a lot easier than we'd assume. So I remember as a kid, I learning in elementary school about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, it was during, I'm pretty sure the um, Kosovo, Herzegovina mm-hmm. wars, and we read Zlata's diary. And then I look at my nephew's education now, and they aren't being taught these things. And there's this fear that somehow by bringing these topics closer at that level for children that they will be traumatized later. But I don't remember being traumatized. I remember being very sad, Yeah. but it was educational. And I feel like that can be done at the adult level too, where you go, huh, really? Because teaching as well, I was teaching an anthropological uh, anthropology class and my, I had a few students that were shocked that there's still cases of genocide. They thought the Holocaust was it. And I was talking about Cambodia. I was talking about um, the current, um, situation with um oh gosh i'm linking on the term it's gonna drive me nuts the um uyghurs Uyghurs? the uyghurs yeah thank you and they were shocked that occurred and so it's like shock is a good thing yeah absolutely and i I, love that you guys are presenting that yeah i think somewhere along the line people got so scared of feeling uncomfortable um and i really hoped that our symposium um was seen as as something that framed discomfort as a tool of learning. Um, And then something that I also thought was really cool and um, that we actually didn't plan, like this wasn't one of the questions that we had come up with, was um, where the emphasis landed on history should make you uncomfortable. And some of our panelists took it as history should make you uncomfortable. um, And they were questioning, you know, who is the you? Um, And some panelists read it as history should make you uncomfortable as in like that is how we should present history um so that was just such an interesting nuance to that because it drove discussion to think about like you know are we asking people to become uncomfortable are we saying that they you know is it like a almost like an aggressive like you should be uncomfortable because there's all these terrible things that have happened that no one talks about um and so i just thought it was such an interesting way to take it Mm -hmm. uh and I just really, I mean, I appreciated our panelists so much and the fact that we had such a wide variety of topics, um, which is important to the coalition and part of our, our mission statement, I think. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Some of the other topics, I was kind of, I was scrolling through the symposium and I was just, the variety is really unique. There's one on Borat and there's one on... <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, another on photography, and I just I love the the variety being there, and also again the accessibility because mm-hmm. I find like, I love going to conferences, but outside the conference, where are you going to get this information easily? Right, exactly. And, so, and I I think for ahead. us conferences are um, 
Uh, my first conference was ASOR in Boston a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being so intimidated. Like I was, I was afraid to ask questions. I was afraid to challenge things. Mm-hmm. And there's something about how we did our conference that it didn't feel that way. It was because we were all peers. Like mm-hmm. there was no, I need to look up to this person or I need to mm-hmm. be nice to this person and schmooze to them because I need to get into a PhD program. It, it was almost in the sense that we are helping one another in the best ways that we can by just being here. Right. So there's no expectation of us having to treat you any differently. Yeah. And I also think, you know, we really um, try to emphasize that even though some of these uh, presentations might be complete research projects, that we should approach it as like there is always room to grow. And if someone asks you a question and you're like, wow, I never thought of that. Like, we want this to be a space where you as the presenter and the audience are all learning something and come back from it being like, this is a really interesting take um, or Mm -hmm. this is a really interesting lens to look at this topic through. Um, Because at the end of the day, I think Hope, Mary-Kate and I are just really, we're just really about education and we want people to be as excited about history and material culture and the things that you can learn from objects. Um, We want everyone to be as excited as we are so well you're definitely getting us excited about all of this and just out of curiosity because i'm i'm interested then when you do your next symposium how did you do a call out for people to do presentations to um, provide their papers uh putting stuff on the website that kind of thing sure so we um pretty much do a uh, we have a general call for papers for our publication so that is a sort of like a rolling Um, submission process. So if you go on our website um, at cmsmc.org and then you look under public uh, under submit, you'll see that there's a call for papers and and the sort of the guidelines. And then for our symposium, we have themed symposiums. Um, We're planning on doing two every year, uh, one in the fall and one in the spring. And we create this call for papers, um, which generally outlines the theme and potential research topics. So, you know, obviously it doesn't have to be limited to these research topics, but these are just things that we are generally interested in. And then part of my job, I'm the um, technology and outreach chair. So I put everything on the website. Um, the website is my my little baby. Um, <laughs> and then um, for outreach, I pretty much spend a couple of hours a day just emailing different graduate programs and people that I think might be interested. Um, And then we have our lovely social media coordinator, uh, Sarah Henslick, who we literally could not function without because she is on top of spreading the word via like Instagram and Twitter. And Mm -hmm. um, that really gets a lot of um, a lot of outreach and engagement. Um, So we're just, you know, we're all across the board. And then we also you know, are willing to maybe reach out to a person that we like know might be an interesting human to present at one of our symposium. And, and we're just like, hey, you should really consider you know, <laughs> sending us a paper. Um, we're not above that. I also just, oops, sorry. I was just going to say, I'd also like to add that um, the symposiums are online right now, so it's all virtual, so it's not um, location-based, and it's also for master scholars who don't often have a lot of extra cash um, to travel to conferences, 
Uh, we try to be accessible in that way. Eventually, we might like to do a one in-person symposium, but right now we're definitely focusing more on the virtual, um, obviously for COVID reasons, but also just for accessibility as well. Mm -hmm. I definitely appreciate that with just how expensive everything is. Is the plan for the spring one to also be online? Yes, it is. Um, and actually, our spring theme is um, material culture in an increasingly digital world. So um, it's both kind of meta, like because it's online and we're also talking about material culture, which is a very physical thing and how, you know, we're all living in this really strange virtual space right now because of the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. And are there pros to that? Are there cons? Um, and how do we sort of navigate in that world? Um, but I also think that having the symposium be virtual is just really exciting because you can record it. Mm -hmm. And something that we really, really like to focus on is how our pres our presenters and our authors can um, market their work. So for instance, we always encourage, um, you know, if you presented at our symposium, you should put that if you have a digital portfolio or if you have... Uh, like a resume that you send out that has links on it, you can just link someone right to the symposium so they can actually see you speak on this topic. Um, and I think that's really important because it just it's just another like deliverable thing that you can say like, this is what I did and this is what mm -hmm. I'm capable of. Um, and I think it's great. That is a really cool idea for especially like a um, digital CV being able to link that type of thing because I think of the presentations I've done you look at a CV it's like yeah so <laughs> so yeah, it'd be really yeah. cool to be able to link that directly be like I can prove it too <laughs> yes. yeah exactly yeah and one of the fun things um as an online instructor uh that I have kind of picked up on is that due to everything that's been going on this year um and probably for the foreseeable at least short-term future um, the skills and the skill set to be able to productively teach online, <laughs> I should say, yeah, um, we're not a, how to do that <laughs> exactly in a in a in a positive manner that uh, can you know, engage people or students. This is one of those tools I think that would be really cool to put in that toolbox for people who are wanting to. Um, really develop that skill set and to develop a resume for um, online teaching uh, as well, because that's something that I think is going to, to some extent, outlast COVID as mm -hmm. far as there's going to be for, like you guys mentioned, the, for reasons that are aligned with accessibility um, is, is going to be a major thing. And that isn't going to go away anytime soon. I know everyone's going to want to hop onto the in-person bus as quickly as it starts rolling again. Um, but that may take some time. Um, mm -hmm. It'll always be online for sure. Yes. Uh, between like the way the economies slow down, it'll take time for that to get back up and running it may not get to where it was just because it's fundamentally changed the way that we do things. Um, people who are working from home mostly and want to stay working at home, um, as well as, you know, just institutions that are like, hey, 
like you know this e-learning thing is kind of a cash cow Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) we're gonna gonna expand that Uh, so uh, there's I think a lot of I know everyone's really hoping for things to go exactly back to normal um, or pre-covid terms but I don't really see that happening at least as quickly or as thoroughly as people are expecting in this type of um, platform and um, a symposium, I think really helps develop that skill set for our imminent future. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I definitely look forward to using these symposiums, the recordings in future online courses. So I think they're a wonderful tool, again, not only just for your um, master's graduates, but I can definitely see my students being very interested in a lot of these topics as well. So we really appreciate what you guys are doing. And sadly, that is the end of this segment. And when we come back, we can talk more about the symposium. Um, We understand that you guys are doing a book club and we've got a lot of fun things to talk about in the next segment. We'll be right back. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archie animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. We're going to continue our conversation with the founders of the Coalition of Master Scholars on Material Culture. And it's our understanding that you are forming a book club. We'd love to hear all about that. So our book club is a part of our Patreon, which Mary-Kate will talk about in a minute. Um, But every two months, we're going to read a book that's material culture related. Uh, Our first book club meeting is going to be in January. We'll be reading The Whole Picture by Alice Proctor. Um, Our second book club book, we just decided yesterday, and I'm stupid excited about it, will be Borrower of the Night by Elizabeth Peters, whose real name is Barbara Mertz, and she's an Egyptologist. it's a fiction book about a, an art historian who goes to Germany to find a lost German relic. It is wonderful and fun, and we really hope that people join us for it because it is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, the book club is for our patron members who are scholar and above. Mary-Kate, please correct me if I am wrong. Um, as well as you can just join book club if you want to, if you want to read the book that we're doing Um for seven dollars a month mm-hmm. yeah um i think our book club is going to be really exciting because it's like an opportunity for people to come together but in a totally casual way and like sometimes we're going to be talking about really tough topics and like you know trying to dissect these things that we all at one point have read or learned about in our master's programs um and then sometimes it's going to be like the most fun fiction <laughs> about. um but yeah, I, I hope that people are excited about it and join us because we are ready to have fun. <laughs> that sounds awesome. And so um, just to reiterate, so this is all for on Patreon, correct? So we have Patreon, um, which you can get access to if you're a patron. You um, can get access to the book club. If you're interested in just joining for the month, we actually have an Eventbrite, um, which you can go through our website and you can find it. You can sign up just for the book club, actually. 
Oh, that's perfect. Well, I think this is a good segue too. Then um, people may be wondering, well, why would you need a Patreon? And the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog, we have a Patreon. And a lot of podcast groups, coalitions, they have Patreons because things cost money and need help getting uh, things to be able to keep doing what we're doing. So please tell us about your financial goals and why you have the Patreon and what you hope to achieve with all of that. Exactly. Like you just said, everything costs money. Um, And so our goal is to make the emerging scholars' voices heard. Um, And so to do that, we have to maintain our website, which has costs. Also, when we have our webinars, um, our symposiums are using Zoom webinar, and so that we have to pay for that. Um, And so all of this kind of adds up. And so we want supporters. We're also starting to do networking events as well. Um, And we have a couple upcoming. We have one which is about finishing your master's thesis in quarantine. Um, We also have a CV building for the humanities. Yeah. (laughs) Thankfully, we have a group of people who just went through it, but there's another whole, you know, cohort of master's students out there writing their thesis right now. So kind of lessons learned from that. Um, We have some great panelists um, from all over, from Tufts, from the Cotald, um, Columbia, kind of talking about their experience finding sources when you can't even go to the library. Um, And so we have all these events that if you are a patron, you can get access to for free. Um, It's included with the patron or all of them are also available on our Eventbrite um, for a small fee just to help kind of pay for everything that we want to keep going. Um, Eventually, if we do have an in-person symposium, we'd like to have a scholarship for people to come because, as we mentioned, traveling to conferences is sometimes cost prohibitive. Um, And we just really want to keep promoting things. That would be huge. Having scholarships for being people being able to attend symposiums and conferences is so important. Can't emphasize enough how expensive these things are, and being able to give poor students a little hope, or a little help, a little hope too, yeah. is huge. It's awesome that you're hoping to put that together. Yeah, that's kind of. Um, I don't know if Hope or Sydney want to add anything about that, but we've been able to um, publish. We're going to publish, I think, twenty four different um, yeah, authors 24. by March. Yeah. 24 by March. Um, and then we're actually, <laughs> um, we are booked publication wise through the end of March. And then April will be our theme month for the upcoming symposium. So everything that's in that month will have to do with digital material culture and the interaction between, you know, the digital and the material. Um, so we're actually currently accepting submissions for our regular call for papers uh, for um, May and beyond. Um, which is really exciting. Our editors are <laughs> very excited to not have a two-week turnaround on their <laughs> yeah. papers um, anymore. Um, but we are super excited about that. Nice. One other thing, too, that we also have is we do also have a bonfire where we sell merchandise. So if you love the phrase, history should make you uncomfortable, and you want a t-shirt with it on it, we, we have those <laughs> um, as well. And is that um, accessible from the website or do they need to go? to? Yes. So if you go to our website under support um, and then under um, shop is going to bring you to there. Um, And so we have just general CMSMC shirts, but then we also have history should make you uncomfortable. We're also going to have like a symposium related merchandise. So for our upcoming one, which is going to be about material culture in an increasingly digital world, I think we're playing around with um, I'm a material culture girl in a digital world or something like that. As long as we don't get sued. (laughs) We're checking on the copyright of that from Madonna. (laughs) That sounds fantastic. Oh my gosh. I would want a t-shirt with that. That sounds so fun. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And it's 
it sounds like you have a great group of people to try to pull this all together. It's definitely doesn't sound like it's a, a one person show that you're all working together and then bringing in all these people to make this into a really unique event, a unique website, all the above. Oh, no, we couldn't. We literally couldn't do it without our seven editors and our social media coordinator, Sarah. She's incredible. Um, we are really bad at social media. Um if you follow any of us on Twitter, I'm so sorry. Um, I just got a Twitter. I'm yes, serious. Sydney just got a Twitter, um, and she's like realizing what the madness is. Like Mary Kate and I constantly retweet one another, so it's the same Twitter feed. Um, but um, we just we couldn't we really couldn't do it without our editors. Um, and when we when we were picking editors and when we had applications open for editors, which by the way. If you are specializing in Africana studies, Asian studies, or contemporary art, we are currently um, taking applications for new editors. So you can head over to our website under opportunities and the application is open there. Um, it will make my life 10 times easier um, so that I don't have to pretend like I know things that I don't actually don't. Um, <laughs> but that is also something we're doing right now. But our editors are incredible um some of them are our friends some of them we've never met before and every single one of them has really just uh, taken this and ran with it and have done an incredible job with it um as the content chair I kind of make sure that everything is together before it goes to site um all the citations are correct that you know the abstract is where it needs to be um and so I get to read the pieces before they go to site which is really the best part of my job um and Every single one of them has their own editing style and they're all phenomenal. Um, there isn't a thing that we could do without them. I mean, we just gave them a manual and they went with it. We're super lucky. We also have an amazing symposium committee too. So our editors oh. can join that, but also people, members of the public. So people listening to this podcast, if you're interested in helping plan symposiums, um, you can send us an email um, and all of those amazing people helped us plan our first one. What's the email? It's admin, A-D-M-I-N, at cmsmc.org. Um, and then our symposium committee was like our saving grace. So we didn't mention this, but for yes. our first symposium, we had over 140 people um, join us as attendees. That's um, wonderful. Yeah. Wow. So it was really like a struggle for us to... Um, keep everything in order and um, obviously there's always technical difficulties uh, because if you are doing anything digitally like there's going to be issues but our symposium committee was so wonderful with like just being on top of everything and then also you know being our eyes when we couldn't you know see everything from the attendee side because zoom is complicated <laughs> and, oh my gosh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm genuinely impressed just how much you guys are doing is not only you know the symposium but you're thinking of just wider range of what you can do with the coalition um i was wondering you you mentioned um the publication is there going to be a paper version available that people uh can get or is it just the ideas then you could just print from the website so right. we do um we do have pdfs at the top of every publication sydney and i take care of that and there's a pdf at the top so if you want to print it you're more than welcome to 
Um, we don't currently have any plans to do a, a paper one just because it's more accessible just to be mm -hmm. online at this point, but there is a PDF available online. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. And I also want to mention that, so part of our, um, I mean, obviously we're very, very um, about accessibility and making sure that everything is readable for our audience and everything, but we're also um, very cognizant of having our authors cited properly. So one of our things that we mm -hmm. always make sure to do is to include a proper citation um, for each of our authors and their work at the top of each um, paper. So it's like super easy, you know, if you are a scholar and you are reading something and you're like, oh, wow, I want to use this information um, rather than, you know, going through the like annoying motions of typing it out and or using Zotero, um, we have it all set there because we just really want to make sure that everyone is just like circulating this well and like reading it and, and using the knowledge um, for research and for just general education purposes. That's awesome. Are you guys hoping in the future to like take the coalition? I know it's like its own symposium, but taking it to larger conferences, like people being part of the coalition and then taking it to something like um, the SAAs or something along those lines and kind of seeing where the coalition can go at a larger venue? Absolutely. Um, we, <laughs> we are happy to do anything that helps us and other people grow because that's, that's our mission. Like um, we are happy to, to partner with people. We currently, we don't have institutional backing. Um, that's the one thing that I think that we will kind of stay away from for a while is having university backing. Um, just because being independent of a university is kind of important for us. Now, granted, part of our Patreon is that we would love for universities to um, kind of help support us um, and that we will provide incentives for universities to be patrons for us so that their students can get early access to some of our networking events or access to our book club, um, access to, to certain things on our website. Um, but we are we are happy to expand in any way humanly possible. Very cool. There's just yeah, you guys are doing a lot, and <laughs> on top of full time jobs, <laughs> we don't stop or sleep or, you know, really <laughs> exist in any other capacity. Yeah, I don't remember the last time I had a day off. <laughs> oh, <So. laughs> yeah, well, that's so cool. And so, um, for the symposium in the spring, is there a date set for when it's going to be going live? or is it still a little up in the air? Um, we have a date set. So our spring symposium is going to be on April 10th, 2021, um, starting at 10 a.m. And we're planning on having five speakers and one keynote speaker. Um, mm -hmm. And our submission deadline is March 1st. So if you're interested in submitting to um, material culture in an increasingly digital world, you should absolutely go on our website. Um, you can find all of our symposium and submission information there. We have an extensive submission FAQs um, with the image rights questions because that's been our toughest challenge <laughs> with helping our authors figure out how to get image rights, which is super complicated. Mm -hmm. um, it's the bane yeah. of my existence. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's all there. And also, if, if there are ever any questions, please shoot us an email at admin at cmsmc.org. Someone will answer you probably within 20 minutes. 
mm-hmm. um, we we are happy to answer any questions. We are also very happy to just talk through the editorial process if, if people need help with things if they're not sure what is an editorial process like what is what does peer review look like what does any of that look like we are beyond happy to help people with that that's awesome and looking to the future are there other topics you guys are already thinking of for your fall symposium oh I... <laughs> sorry <laughs> no it's an excellent question Um, I don't have an answer unless Hope and Mary-Kate came up with something. Um, We have been doing this thing where we just like, we figure it out and then we just start going with it. So like history should make you uncomfortable. I think we thought of this in August. Yeah. And then September we were like, all right, call for papers. And then we had to get it all done by November. So, um, so we don't have anything concrete for the fall, but um, I hope it's going to be good. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there'll be, it'll be good. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be another hour long conversation between the three of us where like one of us, probably me gets really heated about something. And I just say, or one of us just says something and we're like, oh, that's it done. That's, mm-hmm. that's typically how things work here. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're in the same boat in terms of, hey, you guys want to record next weekend? Cool. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the nice well, part also about being very good friends with, you're, I, I hate to call you guys my business partners, but like, I guess you are. Yeah. Um, that's so I'm disgusting. I'm not old enough for that. <laughs> yeah. It's so gross. Um, but that's the nice thing. Like there, there is never a moment where I can't go to the two of them or they can't come to me and we can just kind of like talk about whatever it is we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Because not only, I mean, I was Mary Kate's maid of honor at her wedding. Like Sydney is probably my best friend on the planet like there is never (laughs) anything that the two of them and I can't talk about like it's it's and it's so nice to have that especially with this because a lot of the work is personal yeah Yeah. totally and and I mean yeah go ahead I was just gonna say I mean we obviously have come together to try and create opportunities for others um, but this has also been this like really great experience where we're all just super supportive of each other's work and research and interests. And like, I mean, I have sent my own like writing samples and proposals for other conferences and things like that to Mary Kate and Hope. And I'm just like, oh my God, please help me. Um, and it's just been such a wonderful experience to be able to do that um, with the people that you also work with it's just like mm-hmm. it's a great dynamic I think yeah and I mean, we took the plunge ourselves the first articles that we published were ours because we wanted to make sure that we held ourselves accountable in every way that we will hold every author accountable and that we knew exactly what every author would go through um nice. you guys write about so um I wrote about um imperialist and orientalist display in the British Museum and the Victorian Albert Museum nice Um, Yeah, I wrote about, um, so my paper was called Beaded Souls, and it was about a pair of moccasins in the Metropolitan Museum um, Art of Native America uh, exhibition. Um, And I did a lot of work on that in grad school, uh, because my advisor actually, um, she consulted on the curation. And it was just thinking about like, seeing a pair of children's moccasins um, displayed alone in a glass case in a museum. And how you know they're supposed to be used and worn and passed down and like just really trying to embody the actual object and and look past it to see the people behind it 
And then I wrote about the Theodore Roosevelt statue outside the American Museum of Natural History in New York City um, and the subsequent uh, um, exhibit that they created for it. Um, and then it's actually been, I believe, taken down or going to be taken down soon. But kind of the why there's this controversy, what's the history behind it, and then the subsequent 2018 um, mayoral commission about it and then the exhibit that they created for it. That's wonderful. That's I love what you guys are doing. It makes me very happy. And I'm just absolutely thrilled you guys came on the podcast today because I feel like I've, we've learned so much not only about the coalition, but how much you, you three love what you do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us here. Like we love talking about the coalition, but we also just love talking about like education and archeology span and history with other people. Um, especially now when we're all kind of stuck at home. So it was really lovely to be able to chat with you guys about this and thank you for promoting our our coalition. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, and again, thank you for coming. And to our listeners, check out the Coalition of Master Scholars on Material Culture. Check out their website, their Twitter. Um, are you guys on Instagram? We are, yes. Excellent. So Instagram, check out the Patreon um, we will have links to all of these things and handles and whatnot in the show notes. And just make sure to check everything out. And we appreciate um, that you guys came on today to talk about the coalition. And as always, for the Women in Archaeology podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at, at WomenArchies. And you can email us at uh, womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com you'd like to come on the show if you have questions if you have ideas for future topics please contact us we all hope you are staying healthy and happy in this crazy climate yes take care